Father, thanks for um, just your kindness to us, the fact that your mercies are new every morning. We have a chance to be in your word today. Um, think about you, your son, your church, what you've done. Um, we pray that you'd be exalted in this time and we'd be clear. Listen well to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm. All right, so um, we've been doing church government, and one of the things I did thus far, um, as we've, Adam's not here, is he? I'll have to tease him that his run at the gym must be over. <laughs> the, um, I just realized he's the one missing this morning, one of the ones missing this morning. Um, but we, uh, as we jumped into church government last time, we discussed sort of, um, okay, here's, here's what God has done. He's given us church discipline. He's given us church government. We spent a lot, a lot more time on discipline than we did on what the government looks like. They said, here's a few forms, congregationalism, Presbyterianism, Episcopalianism. Now, there are some offices, and I just kind of skimmed that. And what I wanted to do is come back to the offices in church government um, and say, okay, what, what are the offices? The first thing I told you last time is Christ is the head of the church. Colossians 1.18, Ephesians 2.20 talks about being the chief cornerstone. Revelation 1.18 says he holds the keys um, to the kingdom of heaven, hell, Hades, etc. So Christ is the head and cornerstone of the church. He holds the keys to eternal life or death. You guys follow me on that? Okay. He does that. But he administers those keys through people. You guys hear, hear that? Okay. He administers them through people. Who are the first people Christ administers those keys through? The apostles, thank you, good. The apostles, so we learned that he administers in such a way through them that the apostles are actually called, in Ephesians 2.20, the foundation of the church. You follow that? Okay. They are actually called the foundation of the church. That, that makes them distinct from the rest of us. Right? Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles are the foundation. Now, those keys, in, in that sense, are then passed to local congregations. Uh, we see that in Matthew 18, for example, etc. But Christ gives these elders and teachers, um, or these overseers, or these bishops. We have all these words that are used. So elders are the teachers and overseers of the church, and they are under-shepherds of Christ. You follow me? So if elders are shepherds, they're under-shepherds of Christ, tasked with teaching the word, pastors by the apostles. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at some things this morning. One, the establishment of elders, the character or qualifications of elders, the work of elders, the honor of elders, the rebuke of elders, the reward of elders. You guys ready? We're going to look at those briefly, and then we're going to go to deacons. So let's let's look at the establishment of elders by the Spirit through his local church. Now notice what I said there. Elders are established by his Spirit through his local church. You guys follow me on that? Okay. Um. Somebody want to take Acts 14.23? Jay, can you do that? Um, Somebody want to take Acts 20.17? Anybody? Chris, thank you. Acts 20.28? Dan, thank you. Titus 1.5? Thank you, Curtis. Uh, Ephesians 4.10 and 11. Anybody want to take those? Okay, thanks, Manny. All right, so what is Acts 14.23? I want you to hear this because... Notice we're strategically here. Where, where are we, by the way, just to back up historically, where are we in Acts 14 historically in the church? Acts 14. 
Paul and Barnabas are on their missionary journeys. Okay, so Paul and Barnabas are on the missionary journeys. So you have the Jewish church essentially established, right, by Peter and the apostles. You've seen the church go into Samaria. You've seen the church go to God-fearing Gentiles uh, like Cornelius' household, etc. And now essentially in about Acts 12, 13, you you start to see the, the baton being handed from Peter to Paul, but you really see it's fully been handed now. Now we've moved from a focus on Peter's ministry up through really Acts 10, 11 to Paul's ministry now. In Acts 11, 12, 13, and now really from Acts 13 all the way through the rest of the book of Acts, the focus is on Paul. You guys follow me on that? Okay, and so Paul is out on a missionary journey with Barnabas. Acts 14, 23, go ahead, Jay. Um, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Yeah, okay, so it's just... I know it's just kind of this almost throwaway comment in the middle of Acts 14.23, but what do we see them doing? They go around, they're, they're out on their missionary journeys planting churches, and what are they doing? They're praying and fasting, and it seems to be with the congregation they're praying and fasting, not really on their own. And, what, and then what are they doing for the congregation? Appointing elders in every church. Appointing elders in every church. Now notice the plural there. Okay, They're appointing elders in every church. Church. In other words, there's more than one elder being appointed in every church. You guys follow me on that? Mm-hmm. Okay. This isn't a, this isn't sort of some kind of mono episcopate where you have one bishop or one pastor in a church. Um, you have elders in every church. All right. Um, plural. All right. So um, Acts twenty seventeen. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come. Thank you. Paul in Acts um, 20, from Miletus is calling who to come to him? <coughs> the elders from where? Of the church of, the church of Ephesus. Mm-hmm. Now notice again, there's plural, there's more than one elder in the church in Ephesus. You guys follow me on that? So one of the things we're picking up here, though I'm not going to spend a load of time on it this morning, is the plurality of elders. In other words, everywhere it's assumed there's more than one elder in the church. You guys follow me on that? So there's a plurality of elders. They're there, and, and Paul's calling for the elders in Ephesus. Who planted the church in Ephesus? Paul did. And what is Paul doing in Ephesus when he plants a church? Appointing elders. Notice that? Acts 14.23, what are Paul and Barnabas doing? When they plant churches, appointing elders. What are they doing here? He's appointed elders, clearly. Now he's calling for them, writing them a letter. And actually what you get in Acts 20.17 and following is Paul's, in a sense... Um, letter or address to the elders in Ephesus. Okay, all right. Now Acts twenty twenty eight. As part of what Paul says to the elders in Ephesus, who's got that one? Dan, go ahead. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. Good. Okay. Now, so we're told He called for the elders. In Acts 20.17, the elders of Presbyteros. You guys heard that term before? Presbyteros. What, what denomination gets their name from that term? Presbyterians, right? The Presbyteros, the elders. He, he addresses the elders, and then if you look here, he says in Acts 20.28, when he's addressing the elders that he's writing to in Acts 20.17, in the part of that address, he says that they are overseers. You heard that word, overseers? That's the word episkopos. What denomination do we get from that? Episcopalians. In fact, we get 
Episcopalian church government from that, okay, um, which exists in Roman Catholicism, Anglicanism, and Episcopalianism, etc. You, um, to some extent, carries over into Methodism, but if you look, to some extent, but if you look at Presbyterianism, there's another church government coming from that word, Presbyteros. But these elders are the episkopos, the bishops, the overseers. Okay? Now, I know it's not common in our circles to call elders bishops, but the New Testament does call them bishops. But by bishops, when we think of a bishop, what do we think of? We think of Roman Catholicism, we think of Anglicanism, we think of the idea that there's one guy over a region with a whole bunch of pastors underneath him. Right? Okay? That isn't how the New Testament tends to use the word. In other words, here's elders, you elders are also episcopos, you're also bishops. You guys follow me on that? You're overseers. That's what the word bishop means. To be a bishop is to be an overseer. Okay? Um, Alright. That means they preside, provide oversight. What's also interesting about that is that last time you saw them appointing elders in Acts 14... They were praying and fasting before they laid hands on elders, right? Now, in Acts 20, 28, what does Paul say? Who does Paul say appointed these elders? Yeah, the Holy Spirit made you, give you this job. Okay? Now, that's why they're praying and fasting when they appoint elders, because what do they, who do they believe, of, who do they believe at the end of the day appoints the elders? The Holy Spirit. You follow me on that? Okay. All right. Now, um, what's interesting, by the way, is Paul's talking about the Holy Spirit appointing elders, and then he talks about even from within their own midst, wolves are going to come up, even from within the elders, to pay careful attention. And that gives you the dilemma. What do you mean the Holy Spirit is picking elders who may become wolves, right? And you start to walk through the, the concern of that at the same time. Jesus picked apostles, one of whom was going to be the betrayer. Um, there, there is a sense in which God seems to, in some way, um, allow these kinds of things to happen. And I'm not exactly sure how I want to unwind that this morning. But I'm just throwing that out there to you. All right, Titus 1.5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I direct. Okay, now what is what is Paul telling Titus he's supposed to do in every city? Appoint elders. Appoint elders. Put elders in the place, Titus. Put them in the place. Elders in every city. So there's going to be more than one there. Again, the plurality comes out. All right, Ephesians 4, 10 and 11. Who's got that? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Okay, so now you have this statement, he who us are descended, also he who ascended, etc. Just talking about Jesus came to earth, Jesus resurrected and ascended to the right hand. You just follow me on that? Okay, and he, that one who did that, he gave something. Now notice... What happens when you're giving something? You're giving a gift. Jesus gave a gift to his church. Right? So what are the gifts he gives here? When Jesus gives gift to his church, what does he give? Apostles and prophets. Right? Ephesians 2.20 tells us the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. We don't keep adding on to that group. 
They're the foundation. And, and if you guys need an understanding of what it means to be the foundation and not the superstructure, then talk to any of the builders in here. They just don't keep building foundation forever. Eventually, they, they lay the foundation, and then they build things on top of it. Right? Okay? What did you say, Jeff? Some of us do. Some of you do. Yeah. Because <laughs> you just, that's all you do. Yeah. All right, all right. <laughs> but if you do that well, the buildings, and this is one of the issues, by the way, in the church, I keep coming back to churches that every time they build, they, you know, the church starts to fall, the superstructure of the church, if you will, metaphorically starts to fall down, right? And the church starts to fall apart. The church always gets back to work on how do we fix the superstructure, and they don't ever ask the question, hey, is the foundation lacking or cracking, right? Is there a problem with the foundation? And generally, when your superstructure starts to fall down, you might have a foundation problem. Maybe you should go lay foundation. But laying foundation isn't sexy or exciting. Building superstructure is. Um, all right, so uh, th this is one of those things. All right, to mix metaphors, if you will. But he also gives not only apostles and prophets as the foundation of the church, he gives evangelists and what else? Shepherds and teachers. Pastors or shepherds and teachers. What's interesting is here's the only time we ever see the word pastor or shepherd used in the case of a kind of office, if you will, or a kind of gift. But this isn't a gift or a talent. This is a gift of people. You follow that? Apostles are people. Prophets are people. Evangelists are people. Pastors and teachers, which may be it's possible that chi between that and between pastors and teachers means that's one group, pastors and teachers, or pastor teachers. You follow me on that? In other words, like pastors hyphen teachers. That some guys make that argument exegetically. That's possible. I'm not. I'm not sure grammatically if that that's. I would not argue that's necessary grammatically, but it's it's certainly a possible grammatical understanding that it's pastors hyphen teachers. Is it possible to pastor without teaching? Uh, no, because the first thing, <laughs> even if it happens all the time, so it there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's not possible. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, Jesus is very clear about what pastors are supposed to do, right? What does he tell Peter when he tells him to shepherd the flock? Feed my flock. Mm -hmm. That's why if you ever hear a pastor say to you, it's not his job to feed you, it's your job to self-feed, fire that dude because there's no reason to pay him anymore <laughs> no reason peter is told by jesus feed the flock okay that breaks the whole shepherd sheep metaphor anyway it, it, sheep, uh, it, go it, feed it, yourself <laughs> exactly and why don't you fight off the wolves while you're at it because we're, we're busy over here putting together fancy videos all right <laughs> i'm sorry but it's true you all know it trying to figure out a theme with hashtags Everything. All right, so here, we got too many other things to do. All right, besides feed you and all right. So here's the thing: protect you from the wolves. All right, so but he gives pastors and teachers. You guys follow me on that, okay? So here, it, this is important because these are gifts of Christ. So not only is the Holy Spirit making putting these overseers in place, but who else is? Jesus. The head of his church. You guys follow me on that? Okay. All right. That doesn't give them some special anointing in which you can't touch God's anointing or whatever, okay? That's just a bunch of bull crap, all right? When you hear that kind of stuff. You're supposed to, as a congregation, watch out for wolves. I'll get to that in a little bit. It's not, even in the pastors, okay? Um, is that an elder's responsibility? Yes, but it also is a congregation's responsibility. 
quiet. Um, so we see that there's an establishment of elders by the Spirit um, of Christ through the local church. You guys follow me on that? Okay. All right. Now, the character and qualifications of an elder. Um, 1 Timothy 3. Let's look there. 1 Timothy 3. And we're going to then look at Titus. We're going to see a parallel thing happening here. 1 Timothy chapter 3, um, we're going to look at verse 1 and following, and then we're going to go to Titus, consider the character character or qualifications. All right, this saying, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, notice that that's the episcopos, the bishop, okay? Anyone, it's really odd for us to say, if anyone aspires to the office of bishop, oh no, who wants to, okay. <laughs> This is talking about overseers, elders, okay, pastors. All these terms are used interchangeably. If anyone, is, if anyone is aspiring to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, what is he desiring? A noble what? Task. task. He's not desiring a noble office. You notice that? He aspires to be in the office, but what's his motivation? The office? To the work. The task. Okay? He's not, his, his motivation isn't, I want a seat on a board. I want some kind of honor or authority. His motivation is, I want this task. I want to do the work. You guys follow me on that? Okay. Now it goes on. And by the way, it isn't lacking in humility, the desire to do the work of, of an elder or a pastor. If you're like, man, I want, I'd love to be in that office someday because I want to do that work. Well, start doing that work, and eventually the church will recognize that and put you in that office. Um, all right, so, verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if he does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a <coughs> snare of the devil. Now, notice these are the character qualifications of an elder. I would, and actually beyond that, able to teach isn't really a character qualification, but you guys follow. Um, so these are qualifications of an elder, mostly focused on character attributes. You guys follow me on that? Mm -hmm. Right. These aren't just expected of elders, by the way. You're not supposed to be a drunkard as a regular member of the church either. Okay? Right? These are just um, supposed to be exemplified by the elders. Doesn't mean they're the only ones who are supposed to have these character attributes. Every single person in this room ought to aspire to be described this way. You guys follow me on that? That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is I want to look at how this thing is bracketed. Look at verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. I want you to understand that everything else falls out of that statement. Above reproach. Now, what does that mean? Because that. Above reproach is not define anything for you, does it? Above reproach in what way? Right? Now everything else is going to fall out of that. You could add to this list, by the way, 
It's not like this is complete. Well, if he's all these things, but uh, he's got some other issues that you overlook those things, okay? It's just giving you a general overview. Now look at the bottom, verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So notice how it starts above reproach, and what is the last part? Well thought of by outsiders. Okay. So now we're talking about this man's reputation, aren't we? Because above reproach means no one can bring a charge against him. Well thought of by outsiders means no one can bring a charge against him. From the outside or from the inside. Now what do we mean by charge against him? Not, no one can ever accuse him of sin. Of course these men are going to sin. The, the, the point here isn't, as soon as you're pure, spotless, undefiled, without sin, you can be an elder. Because if that were the point, we would never have any. Okay? The point is that this man's largely known as respectable and exemplary in following Christ. You guys follow me on that? Okay? Um, further, well, I'll, I'll break down the rest. Let's, let's go on to what he means. So let's look at how he breaks down a rough approach. The husband of one wife. Now, this is a funny one to, to interpret given context. In the first century, the problem was polygamy. The husband of one wife means you're only allowed to have one wife. Okay? Alright? So, you can't be an elder and have more than one wife at the same time. Okay? You can't do that. Alright? Got the first thing there? Now, it, what's interesting is when the Reformation started, if you read... Um, which I'll read pastoral books from the Reformation. Um, one really important one <clears throat> that Calvin and, um, and several others after him re read, it was not written by him, written by Martin Bucer, or B it's spelled B-U-C-E-R. One of his, his book, he actually talks about this verse, and he says, look, here we have license for a pastor to be married. And you go, what? why is that his emphasis? Why do you think, in his commentary, the emphasis is, look, pastors can be married, elders can be married. In the first century, their emphasis is, you can only have one wife. Why do you, what do you think is happening there? <laughs> because for several hundred years, the priests weren't allowed to marry. Right? They had to be celibate. So now they're coming in saying, wait a minute, they can be married. You guys, know, you guys follow the distinction there? All right, now, you read commentaries today, and guess what the primary issue is they address? Divorce. 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 Why? Because it's so rampant. <laughs> because it's so rampant. Yeah. What they're doing in all three eras, if you read commentaries from the first century or second century, commentaries from the 16th century, commentaries from our century is, they're taking this principle and they're applying it to their context. You guys follow me on that? Okay. Um, we read this as a divorce passage. We just read it that way because those are the only lenses we have to even experience it through. You guys follow me? Okay. But the idea here is this is a one-woman man. This man is devoted to one woman. Can he ever have been divorced in his life? I really have no interest in addressing that this morning. Um, I think it's probably possible he could have been. I don't think it's preferable that he would have been. You understand the distinction there? Okay, um, but the idea is he's known by both the church communities in and outsiders as a man who's devoted to his wife. 
You guys understand that? Okay. All right. Um, that's his reputation. He's devoted to his wife. He's not a player, right? Okay. You are supposed to hate the player and the game, right, in this case, all right? Okay, now look, he goes on. He's sober-minded, right? The husband and one wife, sober-minded. That means he's, he, 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 he's not, not just not only is he not drunk physically, but, but he's a wise person. He doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't make rash decisions. He's sober-minded. He's deliberate. He thinks. You follow me on that? Okay. He's self-controlled, right? The num this is pretty much the only um, command Paul ever gives to young men in the any of his epistles. He gives all these commands to older women, all these commands to older men, all these commands to younger women. And then he says, and the young men, be self-controlled. Okay, we can understand why that would be. All right, he goes on, respectable, hospitable. Hospitable isn't just, I like to have other Christians I really enjoy to my house. The people who really convenience me well are over a lot. That isn't hospitable. Okay? That's called treating people like a commodity, using them. I only have the people over who I really like and who accommodate me and my schedule and make me feel good. Those are the people I spend time with. That's called seeing people as something for you to use. Okay? That's not hospitality. Hospitality is I am seeking to have people in my home, care for people, show love to people, who are difficult for me, people who are unbelievers, people who are that rejected by others. You follow me on that? Okay. Not you know, people who I love in my church that are easy for me too is good. It's just if that's all you have, check your motive. All right, why are you doing it? You guys follow me on that? If you have a hundred people over your house a week and there are a hundred people that you like that benefit you personally in some way, you probably have an issue with how you see your role in loving people. Okay. All right, so this is a guy who is hospitable in the truest sense of the word, able to teach. This doesn't mean he can get in a pulpit and preach a sermon. This means he can explain the word. You guys understand the distinction there? Someone says, what does this passage mean? He's a guy who may not know right off the top of his head what it means, but he understands how to work at it and get there and then explain it to you. You follow me? Okay. It doesn't mean he's a compelling pulpiteer. Alright? Let's make a distinction there. Um, Alright, and we'll see that in a little bit again when we talk about two different kinds of elders. Not a drunkard. That's clear. Alright? We don't have to keep going, beating up on that one. This guy is not, and he's just not known as a guy who's obsessed with alcohol either. Like, every time you see a Facebook post, he's not holding a beer in his hand. Okay? <laughs> like, you know, this guy's just not known as somebody who's into this, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay. Um, not violent, but gentle. All right? Um, gentle doesn't mean he's a big wuss. It just means he controls the power he has. All right? Um, not quarrelsome. Right? This is guy who, he's just not known as... He's not constantly picking a fight with everybody, right? He didn't start his own discernment ministry and constantly post on Facebook about everybody who's a wolf, okay? Not quarrelsome, all right? This is not a guy who's starting fights all the time, okay? Not a lover of money, all right? You guys understand what that means. It doesn't mean the guy can't be rich. It means he's not a lover of money. He's not a, that's not, he, he doesn't care about that at the end of the day. That's nice. God's given it to me. I need to steward it well. But that isn't what my life is defined by. You guys follow me on that? Okay? 
All right. Um, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Paul actually puts the most words into this topic. This is a guy who manages his own household well. Now this is important to keep in mind, because how this man disciples his wife and kids, how he manages that, how he's respected, loved by them, he's going to carry that leadership into the church. So don't take bad leadership in the home and then, you know, export that into the church. Right? You guys follow that? Okay. That's hugely important. I can't even tell you enough. Look at a guy's home. Look at his marriage. Look at how he cares. Does he, does he manage his household well? Very important. You're talking about a man who's going to lead. Because right there you're seeing how a man leads. In other words, you have a little laboratory that's showing you, here's how this guy leads. Pay attention to that. You just follow me on that. Alright? You can see it. And how he's leading already. Um, Alright. And this, and by the way, you can see whether he's a heavy-handed shepherd violating Genesis 3. Right? In other words, he's, he's essentially this man who, because of the fall, over-shepherds his wife and treats her like a child, like one of the children. Or he's the man who under-shepherds his wife and is passive. You guys follow this distinction? Both are sins. Your wife is not your child. She's not the oldest child in your household. She isn't the one who you get to treat like that. She is your partner in discipling these children together. She's your greatest confidant. She is the one who God has given you to speak wisdom into your life, to help you with your sanctification, to help you with growth, etc. She is not your child, not your oldest daughter. She's none of that stuff. You guys follow me on that? She's also not your manager and keeper and leader. Okay, She isn't the one who tells you what to do. You're not the leader in the house because she said you could be. Okay, that is just you guys follow me on that? Okay, it's neither one of these things. Alright. Okay. Um it goes on. Verse six, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. That's clear, right? Okay? You can't be a recent convert. Now, mind you, Paul planted the church in Ephesus in about two years. And he appointed elders there in that time. Which means they went from not knowing anything about Jesus to being elders in under two years. You say, man, that sounds like a recent convert to me. Okay, well, for one, they generally gathered every single day to be taught. They were being instructed by an apostle every day over those couple of years. Two, these are radical conversions in which their baptisms often meant their death or their abandonment by the community or their loss of income or their abandonment by their families. So the stakes are a lot higher in the midst of this discipleship. You guys follow me on that? That's why we generally have to test and take a lot longer in our culture. The stakes aren't high. You all like will invite people to your baptism. Even your unbelieving friends will come and go to lunch with you and take pictures and say, how cute. Right? Okay? 
That's not the case in the first century. They didn't do that. Right? Their unbelieving friends would turn them into the authorities and have them arrested and fed to lions. It's a very different kind of baptism ceremony. Okay? All right, you guys follow me on that? All right. Okay. So, this is not a recent convert. This is someone who is, in other words, established in the faith. We know this guy gets it. He's ready to lead others. Okay? All right. Verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. By well thought about by outsiders is, in other places, Jesus says, well, if you're, you're my disciples, the world's going to hate you. So now here's the world thinking well of you. How can in one case Jesus is going to say, blessed are you if people revile you and speak falsely against you and say all evil things about your name, right? For so they did to the prophets. Woe to you. If they speak well of you, so, so, so they do to the false prophets. Jesus can say that, and then Paul can say, at the same time, you ought to be well thought of, this elder ought to be well thought of by outsiders. How can both things be true? Is he hated and spoken falsely about and by outsiders, or is he well thought of by outsiders? How can both things be true? Well, the per, and the first one, it's uh, for Christ's sake. I mean, that's what he's saying. All these things could happen to you uh, because of me, because of your faith in me. The other one is more self-earned reputation or respect. Very, very good, Dwayne. The distinction here is between whether you're doing what Jesus did and saying what Jesus said and therefore being disliked by the world and whether you're being disliked by the world just because you're a jerk, okay? <laughs> or a sinner who's constantly putting his sin on display. You guys understand the distinction there? All right. Okay, let's just be clear about that. Okay. All right, Titus 1. Titus chapter 1, you're going to see most of the things repeated. I'm not going to spend any time on the repeats. But, except I'm going to focus in on one a little bit here. Verse 5 in Titus 1. Now, Paul's telling Timothy, go to Ephesus and set up elders. By the way, in 1 Timothy, Paul's going to Ephesus to set up elders. Paul already set up elders in Ephesus, didn't he? First Timothy, I was context, I didn't give that to you. Didn't Paul already set up elders in Ephesus? Yes, in Acts 20, verse 17, who's Paul writing to? The elders he set up in Ephesus. And he's warning them to watch out for what? False shepherds or wolves from within their own midst. And now in 1 Timothy, Paul's sending Timothy back to Ephesus to do what? Appoint elders. Why? Because the elders didn't heed his warning in Acts 20. And there's now wolves among their elders. And so he has to throw those elders out, namely Hymenaeus and Alexander, and put in new elders. Because they didn't heed his warning. Okay, all right. Now, Titus 1, here's Paul writing to Titus. This is why I left you, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. In other words, I sent you there to clean up the messes in the church, straighten the church situation out, and put elders in place. All right? If anyone is above reproach, notice that same phrase again, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Okay, so now, here's the uh, first attribute thrown out there after he's at, told to be above reproach. He's supposed to be this one-woman man again. And he's supposed to have this family whose children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. He's supposed to manage his household well. What does that phrase mean? What is debauchery? Anybody? Drunkenness, partying. Yeah, 
your your child your your child is not open to the charge of being someone who's running around acting wild. Okay, by wild it doesn't mean they're they're not a three year old boy who runs around and climbs on stuff. Okay, that's what three year old boys do. Okay. If you don't have a three-year-old boy who does that, you have a three-year-old girl, okay? <laughs> if you're following on that, they're going to run around and climb on stuff, okay? You, you understand what I'm saying there, all right? So that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is, what we're talking about is the idea that, that this is not somebody who's out partying, drunkenness, orgies, etc. You follow? Okay, now, he goes on and says, insubordination. What's insubordination? They're just willfully disobedient. And they're not, it's not just that they disobey occasionally, it's that they're just known. Your children are known as disobedient. They just don't respect you. They don't follow and obey you. They're not, you're, they don't, people don't look at your family and say, man, that ki- guy's kids obey. Okay? That, that's not how you're marked. As a person whose kids are, in a sense, obedient, managed well, not committing debauchery. You follow me on that? Okay, that's one of the elder qualifications. Now, he says children who are believing. What's interesting is, I think actually the Greek there is better translated who are faithful. Okay, now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, I don't think what he's saying is all of your offspring need to be believers in Jesus, okay? What I think is going on here is he's talking about the management of the household when your children are actually in the household. Are you following me on that? Actually living in your household. When your children are in your household, are they known as faithful to their parents, not insubordinate to their parents, not debauched, okay? Are they known as those who are following and respecting the leadership of their dad? Not are they those who walk with the Lord the rest of their lives and never turn from Him. Okay, you, you guys follow the distinction there. All right, um, it's possible that a man raises his children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that he loves them, they respect him while they're in the household, they follow his leadership while they're in the household, and then they go off and turn from Christ. Is that possible? Absolutely. Okay, it's possible that. Paul's holding them responsible for being an example of a godly man and father and husband and leader in the household. He's not holding them responsible for the results long term being on them. You guys understand the distinction there? If the guy's leading well, okay, now, if a guy's kids are consistently not walking with the Lord as adults, consistently not following what their dad raised them to be as adults, one does need to ask the question, what was going on in that household? Was he leading well? But we cannot make a math equation, one plus one always equals two. If you're just a godly leader, your kids are all going to turn out to be incredible believers. Okay, that's not, you guys follow me on that? Okay, so we need to be careful. So again, this is an issue of, somebody asked me, do you think a man whose kids are adults who are not managed well, okay? They're, they're not believers anymore now that they're adults. All of his kids aren't believers. Would you have him as an elder? I don't know that he's forbidden from being an elder, but again, it's probably not preferable to make him an elder. Probably preferable to tell that man, you ought to spend all your free time pursuing your children for Christ. Okay? You, you guys follow me on that? 
Alright. Um, because we love your kids, and not just the members of this congregation, but we love them too. Go pursue them. Don't bother with shepherding all these other people right now. Go pursue them. You guys follow me on that, okay? Alright. Um, so those... T- Timothy, or Titus goes on, and he, he lists it seem, seemingly the same stuff. Uh, for an overseer... Verse 7, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. That's the whole quarrelsome thing, really. Or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction, sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, so when he says able to teach in Timothy, I think he's that able to teach in Timothy, First Timothy three, is really being summed up here. He is holding firm the trustworthy word is taught. Okay, the gospel, the doctrines that are in Scripture. He is able to give instruction in sound doctrine. That doesn't mean he's a preacher. That just means that when someone's sitting there going, "What's sound doctrine? What's not?" That guy can tell them. You guys follow me? He can give instruction. He can show them in the word. Because he's holding fast to that word. You can show him in the word. Here's what it says. And he's able to rebuke those who contradict the word. Or sound doctrine. And not only is he supposed to be able to. That's part of his job. Okay. Alright. That's part of the responsibility. You guys follow the character qualifications of elders? Okay. I, I, I would love to spend more time on it. But we're going to move on. What is the work of elders? Look at Acts chapter 20 again. Acts chapter 20, let's look at the work of elders. We saw some of it there in Titus 1.9, obviously. Um, but let's go back to Acts 20 and consider a bit of the work of elders. Paul gives this letter, and in verse 26, he starts to say something, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. Now why is he innocent of the blood of all? For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So if you're in a church, listen, if you're in a church and you fail as a leader, pastor, elder, and you fail to declare to that congregation the whole counsel of God, you are not innocent with regard to their blood. What's he referencing here? This is a reference back to Ezekiel and the watchman in Ezekiel, right? What's, what happens to the watchman in Ezekiel? Hey, God's judgment is coming. If you warn them, their blood's on their heads. They don't turn. But if you don't warn them, their blood's on your head. Okay? That's a strong statement, right? And what he's saying here is, as an apostle, Paul carries this understanding that if I don't tell you all the truth, your blood's on, my, on me. Okay? And so, this is not a small calling as an elder, pastor, those who follow the apostles in this work. The apostles laid the foundation of it. Now pastors are just applying what they've taught to the rest of the congregation. But here's the deal. This isn't a small task. Paul actually puts this as he said, I'm I'm innocent of your blood. And the reason I am is because I declare to you the whole counsel of God. So what happens if an elder fails to declare to you the whole counsel of God? He is not innocent of your blood. You follow that? Okay. All right. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. This means that the guy says, hey, listen, I'm going to give you milk. If you want to get meat, you should go find it on your own. Become a self-feeder. 
um, etc., etc. He's not declaring you the whole counsel of God. We don't go deep because this service is for people who are, you know, whatever. You guys follow me on that? No, 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 no. This pastor understands the only way I'm innocent of the blood of all these folks is if I understand I have to declare to them the whole counsel of God. I don't get to hide things from them. I don't get to gloss hard texts, hard texts that they might struggle with. I don't get to do any of that stuff. Okay? I don't get to just talk about a list of topics I'm interested in. Okay? I have to teach them the word. All right. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Now notice the first responsibility, the first work of an elder is to pay careful attention to who? Themselves. Okay, this comes back to the above approach. This does not mean that they're hopelessly introspective navel gazers, okay? Sitting around considering themselves and taking strength finder tests all the time and gifts tests and trying to figure out who they are, okay? This is not what he's talking about, all right? This is what we're talking about here is a guy who's paying attention, he's self examining. Am I, he's meditating on the word and asking the Lord as he meditates, Lord, Show me if there's any wicked way in me. Show me any sin I need to repent of. Help me to walk more consistently with you. Okay? You guys follow me on that? That's that guy. All right? Paying careful attention to themselves. Because if he doesn't, he will never pay careful attention to anybody else. You can't lead sheep any further than you've gone yourself. You can't. If I'm supposed to lead sheep, then if I don't go any further, then they're not going to go any further either. Right? The reason that when I run into pastors who are bored with doctrine, in other words, I, let me take that back. When I run into pastors who are boring, boring their people with milk, what I've, what I've found is a man who himself is bored with the Word of God. Period. Because when you're excited about the Word of God, and you're in the Word of God, it carries over. You just have to tell everybody about it. As a teacher. Anybody here a teacher of any kind? Okay? When you're a teacher, right, you're constantly wanting to grow in your discipline. If you're any good at what you do, if you're the guy who wrote the lesson plans 10 years ago and keeps recycling them, you're killing your students. Because you're not growing yourself. They're not picking up anything from you. You're not paying attention to yourself. You follow me on that? But if you're the guy who's an elder, you're the guy who is a constant learner. You're enthused to be in the Word all the time, and your people are picking up that enthusiasm from you. They're hearing from you, man, this guy loves the Word of God, and he is constant. He's known that way as a man of the Word. This dude loves the Bible. He doesn't know what else to do with himself, but teach you the Bible. Okay, I'll give you an example of that. A guy who I have some disagreements on with some things, but who just celebrated 50 years of, since his ordination, John MacArthur. You can love or hate John MacArthur, but what no one will contend is whether that guy loves the Word. No one. I've never heard anybody say, man, I don't know if John MacArthur is that interested in knowing the Bible. Ever. <laughs> Ever. I've heard a lot of things about him, but that's not one of them. You guys follow me on that? That's how pastors should be known. A pastor should get 50 years in like he has, and everybody around him should be able to say, that brother loves the Word. Whether I agree with him on everything, disagree with him on some things, that brother loves what he's dedicated to it. 
And his whole congregation knows it, not because he stands up every week and just says, oh, I love the word. I was in my office this week weeping over the Bible and rejoicing, and I did a little dance, and I have a flag to wave around okay, about the Bible. It's, it's because they, he just bleeds it. You guys follow me? Um, so what Spurgeon said about, um, and Owen actually said about Bunyan, John Bunyan. You guys heard of John Bunyan? He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, you should read that book once in your life. Don't not read it. I read it every year. It's probably, in my opinion, the most important book next to the Bible in the history of the West. Um, that's a big claim, I know, but it's hugely important. But John Bunyan was a pastor, and actually what others said of him is that if you cut him, he bleeds bibline. In other words, it's just Bible. No matter where you cut him, Bible's coming out. Okay, that's how the guy's known. All right, That's how pastors are supposed to be known. Okay, now... He goes on, so pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That's a huge calling. This is God's church obtained with his own blood. You're caring for his church. Pay attention to yourselves. Teach the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to the flock. Care for them. Oversee them. You guys follow this here? Okay, these are your jobs as an elder. I know that after my departure, verse 29, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. That's among the elders. Which we see that fulfilled, by the way, in Paul's lifetime, which is why he has to send Timothy to Ephesus to clean up the mess. You would come in not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, elders, listen, be alert. And it's interesting, because in our culture, we're not generally told, be alert for false teaching. In your church, among your own elders. Right? Elders don't think about being alert okay, for that. But we have to be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. In other words, Paul's like, man, I poured out my life there for you. Night and day I was teaching you the word of God. Night and day I was admonishing the truth. Don't forget that. That is your watermark, elders. That's the benchmark. That's how you decide what you're supposed to give your lives to. That's it. What I did there, keep doing that. You follow? That's the job of elders. All right. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I can go on and on here, but um, verse 1 now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. In other words, he's just going on saying, look, at there's, there's false teachers running around. Here's what they do. Okay, Now, they're teaching doctrines of demons. False teachers, by the way, are teaching doctrines of demons. Okay, That's a nice little quote there for you. Um, all right? They're teaching doctrines of demons. Now, what the doctrines are here of demons is 
you're not allowed to eat these foods. Okay? Uh, because Paul required abstinence from those foods. Remember? He said, what? Well, now, Paul never did that, actually, right? Did he? He never said you have to abstain from foods. What he said is, if I'm with a Jew and he's going to be offended by me eating meat sacrificed to idols, you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to eat that meat. What these guys are doing is taking that a step further. Well, eventually someone will see you eating that meat. So don't ever eat it. You're forbidden from eating it. You guys follow me on that? You're forbidden. He calls them teaching doctrines of demons. Right? Paul said, it's better for a man not to marry. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Right? I mean, Christ could come back any time, so what's the point of getting married anyway? That's what Paul says. If he could come back tonight, why am I going to go about trying to get a woman and get married and settle down and all that? Okay? Well, you understand the mentality for Paul? Right? So he's saying, there's no reason for that. I might as well devote myself to declaring the gospel. Right? And you should do the same thing. Now, it's not a command. It's a suggestion that Paul gives. But what's interesting is, what are these guys doing here? They're saying, marriage is forbidden. You guys follow how that happens? Okay? It's not wise to drink alcohol. Ever. Right? Somebody says, it's just not wise. It's a sin. You're forbidden. Right? You've just crossed over from what is a wisdom call, is it wise or is it not in this setting or that setting, to forbidding in every case. You guys follow how that goes? Okay? Alright? Alright, if you put these things, verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you followed. So notice what he's telling him. Here's your job. Put these things before the brothers. Train them in the words of the faith. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And so he goes on, and then if you go down to verse 11, command and teach these things. Okay? Go to verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. What? The Bible. Devote yourself to reading the Bible and teaching the Bible. You guys follow that? That's what these guys are supposed to do. goes on, verse 15. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. What does it mean to immerse? Imbibe yourself completely. Yeah, baptism is immersion, right? You're dunked all the way into that water. Immerse yourselves in them. What? Public teaching, reading of Scripture, exhortation. Okay? Immerse so that you all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself. Notice you heard that from Acts 20, 28, right? Okay. And on the teaching, or the doctrine. That's actually also translated. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. There is a, I don't have time to unfold that, but an incredible connection there between the, um, the spiritual life of the pastor elder and the salvation of his hearers. Um, there's a kind of spiritual power that comes with a man who's attending to the word and prayer and godliness in the salvation of souls that isn't there if he's not. So one of the things you want to start asking, and I'm not exactly sure how to unfold all that this morning without a big, long sermon, but what I want to get at is... Um, one of the first things a pastor or a group of elders ought to ask if people and their co if people are not growing in their faith and being saved, if the church seems dead and stagnant, 
the first question ought to be, what's going on in the spiritual lives of the leadership? They ought to be asking themselves that. If their congregation is coming and asking them that, it's too late. Okay? The answer, the question's been answered. You, you follow? Okay, alright. Now, let's, let's go on to... Um, <coughs> 2 Timothy 1, you can look there, let's keep going to Timothy real quick, and I'll just try to make this as quick as I can. Verse 13, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. This is again, following the pattern of sound words, the doctrine has been taught in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard it. Why? Because look at verse 15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Well, that's strong. All who are in Asia turned away from me. That sucks for Paul. He planted those churches. Among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. In other words, these are two of the guys who actually led people away from the doctrine. Attend to it. Here are some guys who led people away. Now go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is huge. I actually wish your buddy was here to hear this, Chase. This is huge, but look at verse 1 and 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now notice this. Paul is teaching Timothy. So Paul's entrusting the sound doctrine to Timothy. And who's Timothy supposed to entrust it to? Faithful men. Faithful men. And what, those, what are those faithful men supposed to be doing? Teaching. teaching others also. So Paul's thinking about... Here, Paul pastorally has in mind four generations. Right? I'm teaching, I'm teaching Timothy. Timothy's teaching faithful men. Faithful men are teaching others. Me, then Timothy, then the, then the, the ones he's entrusting to, and then the, fall, the guys from them. Four generations from himself to these guys, Paul's mindful of as a pastor, as an apostle. He's asking Timothy essentially to follow that same pattern. Right? Timothy, I want you to go and trust these things to faithful men. Who do you entrust these things to? Faithful men. Pastors and elders ought to spend the majority of their time entrusting these things to faithful men. Not trying to convince unfaithful men. Okay? They, they should be evangelists, don't get me wrong. But when they're pouring their time in, they're looking for faithful men. And they're saying, I'm going to pour my time into entrusting these things to them. So they're able to do what? Teach others also. And to keep passing the baton. Yes, is, sir. Is this different than, than discipleship of others? Or is this discipleship? I, I wouldn't make it entirely distinct with this exception. The, the, the change that occurs, this is really leadership training more than anything else. But the thing that occurs, that's a big difference between Matthew, for example, Mark, Luke, and John where the disciples are following Jesus, and then what you see in Acts and the epistles, is discipleship with Jesus was a group of guys follow Jesus around and learn from Jesus. Discipleship in Acts and the epistles is the body of Christ speaks into the life of one another. And do they have pastors and elders who teach or lead? Sure. But discipleship isn't all of us follow one guy. He's the guy who disciples me. Okay? He's not Jesus. Right? Okay? So, you're discipled by the body. That's why all the parts Paul talks about over and over again have to do their job so that we all grow into maturity. 
So in other words, it's multiple members of the body doing their job that helps us grow in maturity, not one guy who we follow around who disciples us individually. Um, incidentally, because of our misunderstanding of that, we have an overly individualistic understanding of the church. Um, because we've just sort of taken Jesus' model, imbibed our culture into it, and, so, and we now see the church that way, where we basically say, um, everybody's got to find their own discipler, and that guy goes around and, and disciples everybody. And, and there's, there's not this understanding that, hey, the whole body, even the most broken members of this body are discipling me. And we're pouring into each other's lives. You guys follow me on that? All right. That, that's extremely important to keep in mind. Even the weakest members of the body are discipling you. And if they're not, something's wrong with you spiritually. You need to self-examine and ask the question, am I failing to be around the weakest members of the body and even learn from them? You guys follow me on that? Okay. Um, and uh, Here's the flip side of that. If you're always the strongest member of every relationship you're in, something also is wrong with you. Okay. All right, you need to repent. Right? You guys follow me on that? This is how it works. What's that? We, we're supposed to be in a body of Christ that we're always in each other's lives, building each other up. All right, so I would say, Manuel, this is more focused on leadership training here. Though, obviously, this is how discipleship does occur. From We're teaching each other and passing it on. And, okay? All right. Um, I'm not saying you shouldn't have personal relationships with guys you go to lunch with who you guys get in the word with. I'm not suggesting that. I'm not saying a dad isn't primarily responsible for the discipleship of his kids. He's primarily responsible. He's not solely responsible. So understand that. He's the lead. The church is there to help him. I'm not the only one who disciples my children, my, or my wife and I are the only one who disciple our children. We want the body of Christ to disciple our children. We even want the weak members of the body of Christ to disciple our children. We don't want to hide them from them. Okay, um, you can chew on that one sometime and think about it. All right, Second um, Timothy two. Or so let's just go on to um, two fifteen since we're there in chapter two, real quickly. Two fifteen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Are you guys seeing the emphasis for these elders? Is it clear? By the way, you might not be an elder, or you may think, I'll never be an elder, and that's fine, uh, but you will live under them. These things are telling you what you ought to be looking for, okay? All right, let's go down to 2 Timothy 3 and verse 14. But as for you, here he's talking to Tim Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, largely a, a, a tip to the Old Testament, <coughs> which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God. Now people say, well this is just the Old Testament. It's not because actually in the letters to Timothy, Paul in one place quotes from the, the Gospel of Luke and calls it scripture. It is written and he quotes from Luke. So we know that he's not just referring to the Old Testament, though he's largely referring to the Old Testament. They didn't have all the New Testament books. You guys follow me to this point? Okay. All right. Um, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That man of God there is actually a reference to the elder of the pastor. Okay? He's going to be equipped for every good work by what? The Bible. The man of God is a man of the word, right? Okay, and he goes on, I charge you, verse 1 of chapter 4, in the presence of God and, Christ, and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, now there's a major setup. I, I just want you to hear the weightiness of that setup. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. That's big, right? Big setup. You're in the presence of them. I'm charging you in their presence. Okay? And I'm in their presence. Who is to judge? Christ is, is to judge the living and the dead. You follow the logic? And by his appearing and his kingdom. I'm also charging you by his appearing and his kingdom. This is massive. Okay? This is a... These are your marching orders, pastor. Okay? Follow that? Okay? Now, after he says all that, what he says is, string together a lot of nice analogies, jokes, illustrations, and videos. Okay? And that's not what he says, is it? What does he say? Preach the word. What's he to preach? The word. The word. Be ready in season... And out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. What this doesn't say is, pull your punches, gloss hard scriptures, just tell them what they want to hear. It doesn't say any of that. You're going to say things people don't want to hear. Now, also key, with complete patience. My job as a pastor, or a job of a pastor elder, is not to beat his congregation into submission. It's to tell them the truth with complete patience. Okay? So he's not supposed to be avoiding the truth. He's also not supposed to be impatient and expect them all to just ship, ship, get ship-shaped that Sunday. You guys follow me on that? Okay? This is complete patience. This is a pretty broad statement. Complete patience. And you read that, and... Uh... It's no wonder that the church in America today is struggling, because look at the look at the the, the, the large church, the large churches that we're all heard or know about. Uh, what are they doing? They're not doing this. They're doing what you were saying. You know, they're 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 uh, tickling uh, their congregation's ears. And then you get on the flip side, you get the over shepherding again. Like I said, with the wife, you can over shepherd. You can also over shepherd your congregation, which is where you basically are the heavy all the time. There's no patience. Here comes the doctrine now. Get it together. We're just going to beat you to death until you do and nitpick you until you do. You guys follow me on that? Okay. So you're supposed to tell the truth, reprove, rebuke, exhort, preach the word. That's supposed to just bleed out of you all over the place. But it's supposed to do so with complete patience. God's been patient with you. You're in a process. They are in a process too. They're all going to arrive this Sunday. Okay? This isn't the time. This is why it's so radically inappropriate to me when pastors stand up and yell at their congregations and chew them out. And you guys seen any of those sermons? Like they put one on the YouTube at one point. It went viral. This pastor yelling at his congregation, and I'm just like, dude, you know, you you are not. That's what pastors resort to when they don't trust the Word of God to do the work of God. You know, the Spirit of God to be working through the Word to do it. So they just have to start manipulating, just pounding their people. Okay, you guys follow me on that? So we, that's not good either. 
So when I'm telling you, you got to teach the word, teach the word, teach the word, I'm not saying pound people to death, right? Okay, with complete patience, right? With gentleness, humility, etc. All right, verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, I want to show you one more. Look at 1 Peter 5. There's a lot more, but I need to sum up with elders because I didn't even do deacons. So, 1 Peter 5. Um, Peter here is, we've read a lot of Paul addressing elders, so let's hear from a different apostle, huh? Okay. All right, 1 Peter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder, he's a fellow elder, he's also, by the way, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Now notice, shepherd. I exhort the elders among you to do what? Shepherd. Shepherd. You're going to get all three words in the same passage. Presbyteros, poimen, or a pastor shepherd, and then if you go on, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Okay, that's where you get into this episcopal idea. Alright, so bishop, elder, and pastor all appear here. Same job. Okay. Exhort the elders among you to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. What are elders supposed to do? Shepherd. Pastor. Okay. Exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful game, but game, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples <coughs> of the flock. When an elder or a group of elders has to stand in front of you and say, "We're the elders; you should submit to us," he already lost. He's not supposed to lord his authority. He's supposed to be an example of the flock. The elders are to be examples of the flock. Okay. Now, if he's teaching a passage that says, submit to your elders, he's supposed to teach you that passage. But if he's constantly having to tell you to submit, you are, it's, it's the same thing in marriage, by the way. The, word, the moment you tell your wife, you're supposed to submit to me, you have lost. That is over. Okay? You are not understanding how this works. Right? Okay? If you are a godly, loving example, your wife may rebel in a situation with regard to you, but she will eventually recognize you're a godly, loving example, and come around, and she'll come to you and say, you know what, I, was, I, I shouldn't have acted that way. You following that? You don't have to put her in her place. Okay? I don't even know what that means. All right? Just love her. Be a godly example. Shepherd her. Okay? Lead her. Point to the truth. Be resolute in what's right. But you don't control her, put her in her place, tell her to submit. You follow me on that? Okay? The same thing is true with your congregation when you're an elder or pastor. You love them, teach them the truth, shepherd them, reprove, reprove or rebuke them when it's needed, right? Pursue them when they're lost or wandering, etc., etc. But you don't have to stand up and tell them, submit to us and lord your authority over them. You follow me on that? Okay? All right. Um, by the way, they will, incidentally, if you're a good leader. And if they don't, it's generally because 
they're about to walk away from the church altogether, not just yours, but the church altogether. Okay, that's just the way it tends to go. All right. Um, so you're not just a domineer over those in charge, but being examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, I'm going to go here because I'm going to get to the reward in a minute, so I'm going to hit it while I'm here. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. All right. When, 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 what's the reward for elders? The unfading crown of glory when the chief shepherd appears, that's, who is Christ. You guys follow me on that? That's the reward. So what's the reward for faithful elders? When the chief shepherd appears, they get this unfading crown of glory. Okay, that's their reward. That's what elders are supposed to be looking forward to. That's why you go through the bitter hard work of being an elder. Not because you want any other kind of gain. Not because you want authority over people. But because you're looking forward to that unfading crown of glory that Christ gives to faithful elders. You guys follow me on that? Mm-hmm. Alright. Um, let me let me jump into the honor of elders real quick. Um, and I'm going to hit this one fast. Hebrews 13, 17. Um, let, let, well, let's just uh, honor and double honor. Um, who can do... Somebody take... Thir- Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. Anybody want to volunteer to take that? I only have a few minutes left. Anyone want to volunteer? 7 and 17. Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. Okay. And then um, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. Can somebody find that for me? Who wants to do that? Chris, thank you. First, Chris will have it. Um, Joel, can you take um, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18? And um, Jeff, can you get Galatians 6, 6? All right. Okay, let's start with 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. But at peace among, be at peace among yourselves. Okay, so what does he tell the congregation to do with regard to the elders slash pastors here? Respect them. What else does he say? Deemly highly in love. Okay. Be at peace with them. Be at peace. So there's a sense of which they're you're you're honoring these men for their work among you. Not it doesn't say love the personalities of those guys. Okay, it doesn't say that. It says honor them for their work among you. That's what you're paying attention to. Are they faithful at their job? And I'm honoring them and loving them for that. You guys follow that? Okay. Um, you don't always have to just love everybody's personality as an elder. You love them. And honor them because of their faithfulness to the task. You guys follow me on that? All right. Respect them for that reason. All right. Um, who has got Hebrews 13, um, 7 and 17? I do. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. 17. Okay, hold on real quick. Okay. So imitating their way of faith. You're remembering them and imitating their way of faith. Go ahead, 17. Um Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Okay, so you're supposed to obey these leaders and submit to them because they're, what's their responsibility? They have to give an account for your soul. I, 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 that's a weighty responsibility to me. I always have to, I always have to consider... The, every time we're in a membership class, I'm going, oh, gosh, 25 more souls I have to count for. Like, you know, everybody else is going, isn't it great? I'm going, oh, I'm going to stand before God and give an account for it. I mean, I actually think about that because I just realized that's weighty. That's weighty. I don't want to get an account for thousands and thousands of souls. People are like, how big do you want the church to get? Not very big. Why? Because I have 
stand before God to count for every one of those people. I, I need to know them at least, right, if I have to do that. So that's, uh, that's nerve-wracking to me. Um, that's a weighty thing. Um, but he says to obey them because why? You don't, you, it's not going to be an advantage to you if you make it hard for them, right? That's why I tell people, it, it, do me the favor of making that great day easy on me, if you would. Um, and the way you live your lives during the week. If you can remember that, next time you're tempted to look at porn, hey, my pastor's going to give an account for this too. You know, okay. All right, now, no, all right. That's not that heavy, but you follow. All right. All right, Galatians 6, 6. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Okay, so now this is the idea of sharing all good things with the one who teaches. This is an, another kind of honor. Um, if you're taught, you share all good things with those who teach. That's talking about actually some kind of remuneration, even financially or stuff, okay, et cetera. All right, um, first, uh, excuse me, First Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Yeah, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who create media and lead in worship. Was <laughs> 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 that what it says? Yeah, okay. For the script, well, sorry, especially if those who labor, <laughs> preaching and teaching. I still like the other one. Yeah, yeah. Elders who rule well be worthy of a double honor. Now, what he's talking about here is two kinds of elders: double honor elder and single honor elder. There's only two kind of elders in a church. There's not elders and pastors. Okay. There's not elders and staff pastors or whatever you call it. There are elders who are double honor, and there are elders who are single honor. Double honor elders, single honor elders are guys who are good elders, but they're not particularly gifted at teaching and leading. They're good, godly men who meet the qualifications, who are shepherding the flock, but they're not the most gifted in the group at teaching and leading. The guys who are the most gifted in the group at teaching and leading are the guys who get the double honor. In other words, you're so gifted at, here we're a team of guys. You are so gifted at this, we're going to pay you to just stop doing whatever else you're doing and put all your time into this. That's what he's talking about there. Okay, among us. It, it, what happens in a lot of churches, though, is the elders are the leaders, and the pastors are sort of their servants, who work for them and are paid because they're not quite wise enough to sit in the meetings and give input. Which is kind of a bizarre model because this is actually, Paul's seeing it completely the other way around. The elders who are most proficient are the ones you pay. And the elders who are least proficient, though good godly guys, but you don't pay. They're part-time. You guys understand the distinction? All right. Um, and you particularly want the ones who are gifted at teaching and leading in that sense. Um, that's the double honor. The single honor is the respecting, following their lead, honoring, you know, loving. The, the double honor is the sharing all good things, um, is the giving them the double honor, which Joel, go on and read verse 18. This part is particularly important. Uh, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So when you think of your elders who get paid, you should compare them to oxen. Right, that's right. They're just like oxen <laughs> treading out the grain, right? Okay, but the idea there is the labor's worth is wages. So you—that's what—that's why I say the double honor is pay. They're worthy of the double honor, and then he goes on and says the worker's worth is wage. You follow that idea, okay? All right. Um, so that's the single and double honor elders. Um, an elder can be removed if you go if you continue to go down in that passage. When it talks about elders who are sinning, um, you're to rebuke them in front of all. 
Because that, that, is, that is the most devastating thing that happens in the life of the church, is the elder or pastor who is unfaithful, to, who drops the baton. It doesn't get worse than that. That is a time for a church to weep and mourn and seek the Lord. That is, that is, and it's nothing short of that. Because it doesn't get worse than one of the shepherds dropping the baton. It doesn't get worse. Okay, for a congregation. Um, that's as bad as that gets. Right? Um, okay. The rebuke, of, that's why I'm going to go into the rebuke of fallen elders, just the last, the reward I already gave you, so I'm giving you, which is the unfading crown of glory. What's the rebuke? 1 Timothy 5.19, Joel, since you're there, you want to read it? Let's see, 19 now? Yeah. yeah. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Right, now keep going. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that they may rest so that the rest may stand in fear in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels are charged to keep these rules without prejudging. Right. Okay, so you don't admit a charge against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. In other words, these are people who know that that sin is also true. Not, not, it's not two or three gossips who heard about it also. It's two or three witnesses. You understand the distinction there? But when a charge comes against an elder because two or three witnesses to that sin are, are bringing that charge, um, then what are you supposed to do that? Are you supposed to rebuke them in front of all? You rebuke them in front of the congregation. Why do you do that? So that the rest of the congregation may stand in fear. Because our shepherd has just given us a terrible example. Let's not follow that example. Let's fear going down the same road he's going down. Okay? We rebuke him in front of all. Um, you, guys, you guys follow that? Pretty strong wording. Not often practiced, right? Um, it's one of those unpopular verses in the Bible. We, we generally have pastors who fall from ministry and we give them parting gifts. Thanks for all your faithful service. What? This is a time to rebuke and weep and mourn. You follow me on that? Okay. It's about as devastating as it gets for a church, incidentally. Um, and there's good reason for that. All right, um, next time I'll get into deacons and membership. <laughs> Sorry, next, next week we'll be, be here and, and we'll get into that. All right, um, I, I, I spent more time on elders than I expected to, but hopefully the, the points were clear. All right, um, let me pray. Father, thanks for your word, its clarity, its truth. Um, thankful that your son, by your spirit, through your church, has given the gift of elders to the church. Pray that you would um, make those elders of sovereign grace faithful, that you would work in them in such a way that they honor you, that they fulfill the responsibilities and the work of the ministry well. Pray for elders in other local churches around town, Father, the same. Pray that you would work powerfully by your spirit in them. We pray that you would be honored. Pray that you would, I ask Father, you work in my own life to keep me faithful long term. We are mindful of the fact, all of us, that you, if, if you don't keep us, then we're not sticking around with you. 
Lord, and so we just entrust ourselves to you, knowing that you are faithful, that you will not leave us or forsake us. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, man.